Hello, and welcome to the Economist Intelligence Unit's Digital Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Swaby. This podcast is sponsored by DXC, an independent IT services company that specializes in digital transformation. We thank them for their support. There can be few applications of digital technology more worthwhile than saving lives. Little wonder there's so much hope and expectation placed on digital healthcare. From telemedicine to self-care apps, from AI-driven oncology to digital pills, there's no shortage of innovations vying to support and enhance the provision of healthcare. However, as we'll hear in this episode, integrating digital technology into healthcare systems is uniquely complex. If the human body itself were not complicated enough, the intricacies of healthcare funding and the delicate balance of interests that healthcare providers must navigate make change and innovation all the more challenging. The data collected in the course of healthcare provision is among the most sensitive information recorded. And while some digital enterprises have the luxury of being able to move fast and break things, experimentation in healthcare has to be carefully controlled. This episode provides an introduction to some of the challenges that healthcare providers face in their pursuit of digital innovation and explores some of the paths forward. I'm joined this month by Professor Anne Blanford, Deputy Director for Digital Health at the UCL Institute of Healthcare Engineering, by Jackie Hunter, Chief Executive for Clinical Programs and Strategic Relationships at AI-powered drug development firm Benevolent AI, and by my EIU colleague, Elizabeth Sucker, Managing Editor and Global Editorial Lead for Healthcare. I started by asking Professor Blanford, what are the frontiers of digital innovation in healthcare? Well, there are many different frontiers because digital health is such a broad field. Uh, But I think there are three main audiences for digital health technologies. The first is the individual, you know, the citizen. Um, And for, for them, there are lots of new apps wearables, even implantables that are emerging on the market um, that help us to manage our own health and help professionals to work with us in managing our health. Um, They may help us sleep better, quit smoking, whatever. Um, The frontiers, I think, are more apps and other technologies that are clinically validated and that actually have been proven to have a significant effect, at least for a segment or sector of the population and also um, apps that integrate with other clinical technologies such as glucometers to ensure that the data is transferred from medical devices through into big data. Um, For health professionals, there are a whole bunch of digital tools that support diagnosis, decision-making, treatment. They include electronic health records and a variety of medical devices with digital interfaces. Current frontiers include artificial intelligence that is receiving a lot of press right now. Um, It seems ridiculous to say it, but I think an important frontier is actually getting the different medical devices and healthcare systems to actually talk to each other effectively, safely, securely. Um, And so that patients are treated as whole human beings, not as a series of different clinical conditions in silos. And then the last group of users for digital health technologies are in public health, um, bringing together lots of sources of data across thousands or millions of patients to spot trends and to plan and to prioritise and to think strategically about the future of healthcare. And then the final frontier is actually joining up all those perspectives so that the individual health data is actually used for clinical care and used as part of a public health initiative. That's great. So, so you've been covering um, uh, digital technology in the healthcare context for for a while. Do you, uh, when you think back to maybe ten or twenty years ago, 
Uh, do you think it has come as far as you expected by then? Has the integration of digital technology happened as fast as you would have expected? I have to say no. I think I was quite naive 15 years ago and thought that by now we would have a lot more health technologies in our daily lives, particularly for people who are managing long-term and chronic conditions, um, but more generally for, for all of us in managing our well-being more, more generally. Um, and I think it's taken a lot longer to see that change. I mean, I think it's still in a, at early days now because healthcare and, and people are so complex and actually you can't just plug things in and expect them to work first time. We have to adapt society and adapt our social structures and adapt to accommodate the the, the expectations of new technologies. Great. So, so Elizabeth, uh, what do you think are the biggest challenges to integrating digital technology into, into healthcare systems? As Anne said there, they're such complex systems, the provision of healthcare. So is that why perhaps uh, uh, progress hasn't been as fast as expected? You're absolutely right, Peter. Um, it's such complex systems. So you're going to need champions to help embed it at a local level. And you need to also train up healthcare professionals so they can understand what this new technology is all about. And so there needs to be this culture of continuous learning and innovation. And that takes time. And we know there are budgets are stretched. And so this is going to be very hard to achieve. So one of the most important things is digital, um, digital literacy. And to what extent do our healthcare professionals have this? There's such an age range. There's such a uh, educational range in our healthcare professionals. And so we need to really think about that long term. Um, also, uh, as you said, Anne, I agree with you, we don't have enough long term evidence around these healthcare technologies, these apps. And as, as healthcare professionals, you kind of need to know whether it works. And, and so you can better advise patients and, um, and also interpret that data it's generating. Another really big challenge, and I think, is around trust. So who owns the data? How will it be used? How comfortable will people feel about data on their wearable going into an electronic medical record? Who's going to look at it? What's going to happen to it? As you all probably heard recently, um, Google was keen to buy Fitbit. Now there's tons, millions of data on health on healthcare in those, and it's worrying what will happen if that data going forward. Um, another area is I don't feel regulators are up to speed with the science here. The FDA has a digital healthcare unit. That's great. Um, so they're going to need to hire the experts. Okay, these data data engineers, these informaticians, these um, genomics experts to keep up to pace for the speed in this science that's moving so quickly. Um, and also they need to be on top of, they need to create the standards in terms of where, what, what standards do we apply here? Do we only look at um, apps and products that have a real therapeutic claim? What about those others that are not so therapeutic but might have long-term consequences for our health? I, th I think I would kind of add that as well as health professionals being very mm. variable, of course, patients, the public, are even more diverse because most of us don't have any kind of medical training at all. And we come from many different walks of life. We have many different value systems. So as well as the health professionals, it's also thinking about the population more broadly in terms of variability. We're lucky in Europe and the US, you know, um, I mean, the population does have a degree of health literacy. But if you go look globally, you know, emerging economies, health literacy is very poor. So that's going to be an important thing to develop. But I would say even though there is a certain amount of health literacy, Actually, the adoption of the technology is hugely, hugely variable across different healthcare systems, across different patients. Um, I have heard professors of pathology say there's no way a machine can tell me what is a normal image. 
And, uh, you know, until we overcome some of this distrust of the technology and, as Anne says, tap into people's value systems, then it's not going to be effectively taken up. But I think it also requires us not to make any big mistakes. So it takes very few big mistakes to really undermine trust. Care.data, for those of you who remember it, yeah. was such a big mistake. Can you recap Care.data um, for our Care.data was an initiative to make our care records available both for research, but also potentially for private organisations. And the concern about these issues of privacy that Liz mentioned um, was so large that care.data quite quickly got shelved um, because it threatened our, our sense of trust in who was curating and taking responsibility for our health data. I was just going to say, so planning is hugely important. I mean, if you look at the um, the tie-up between Google DeepMind and the London Royal Free, it sounds like a great idea. I, I'm, I'm a pharmacist by training. I'd like to pick up acute medical uh, renal injury in hospital early before the patient suffers and, and has renal dysfunction. And so it was a great idea to start off with, but it went, you know, not so great in the end because, you know, the information commissioner got involved and to what extent was the data properly shared. So we need a good governance structure around this so we can benefit both sides. The companies that are, we know the private sector is good at developing these things, but also we as citizens, as healthcare professionals, you know, as to how this data is being used. So Jackie, I'd I'd like to uh, bring you in there. So Benevolent AI, your company, uh, uh, applies artificial intelligence to to, uh, drug development, and I'm sure patient data is part of that. We ourselves don't hold patient data apart from the clinical studies we we run, Um, but clearly we access patient data. Um, For example, we've done an extensive uh, analysis of the data from ALS, from motor neurone disease studies that's held in the PROACT database, which is publicly available. Um, We also look at basic bioscience because we go all the way from early drug discovery right the way through to clinical development. Uh, And so it's really important for us to be able to access high-quality data, but we're also very clear about the need for transparency and how we're using that data. So what to, what to you uh, characterises finding the right balance? Are there any um, jurisdictions, any healthcare systems that you think have found the right balance? Or are we still finding our way? I mean, I think the most important thing, I think, is this transparency. So people are very clear. I mean, the example that Liz highlighted in terms of Google DeepMind and the Royal Free Hospital, one of the issues there, I think, is it wasn't transparent early on exactly what was going to be transferred and, and what was going to be done with that data. I think if you get that right and you engage with the patients, it's very important for us to work with with patient groups so that they understand what we're trying to do, Um, for example, with the ALS Society in America. So there are healthcare systems and uh, organisations where I think they have got it right. Uh, UK Biobank, I think, is a very powerful resource for research in the in the UK. And what is it about the UK Biobank that you think is uh, particularly effective? In- well, I think the way that the data is collected, the process for being able to access it, the ability and ease of access once the, the clear ethical and regulatory guidelines are, 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 are passed. It's harder for a small company like ours to be able to access some of these data sources because we don't have some of the financial resources of the, of the larger companies. But 
uh, I think as things move forward, there's going to be an increase in interoperability, an increase in data sharing and transparency. When it becomes clear that by doing that, for example, you can identify patients that are much more likely to respond to a drug than those that are not. One of the biggest issues for the patients and the pharmaceutical industry is that we're still seeing 50% failure rates in phase three trials. So you've been working on a drug for many years. You take it to a stage where you've already spent several hundred million pounds on that drug and you're still seeing a high failure rate. And most of the time it's because we don't understand the disease well enough to know exactly how that drug is going to work in a whole range of patients when you go into a broader uh, group of patients. So if we can actually find those patients who will respond best to that treatment, it's going to uh, facilitate more rapid drug development it's going to mean that patients who will not respond to that drug won't be exposed to it. And therefore, I think it's going to make the whole system more efficient and effective. And your research looks at, um, in part, in the, the development of uh, digital systems that are safe to use in uh, medical environments. Uh, can you talk about some of the ways of the, the methods of digital of technology development that uh aid with the integration of digital technology in healthcare systems? Yes, so as a human factors specialist, I advocate iterative design because we can never get it right first time because people are at the centre of the use of technology and interacting with it. Um, unfortunately, in healthcare, um, it's much more challenging to use some of the agile and very iterative approaches that are used for games and entertainment technologies because in those areas you can deploy a technology, see how people engage with it, how they interact with it, and then keep iteratively changing it. Whereas in healthcare, you really need to make sure that you've got something that is safe and fit for purpose before you launch it at any scale. So we are kind of trying to deal with this mismatch between trying to get people involved at a really early stage because that's the way you develop technologies that are actually fit for purpose, but also ensuring that they're safe before they go very far. Um, so I think that involves a, a whole pile of techniques to do with engaging with users early, understanding people's lifestyle, not just asking them what they need, because actually most of us are pretty inarticulate about what's possible and what we really want in the future that's different from what we've got at the moment, um, but also observing people's lives I'm an academic, so I'd also talk about developing theory that is relevant in this space to understand how we engage, you know, get people engaged in behaviour change, how we design technology that is actually more likely to be safe, less likely to be prone to human error. What does the human factors approach tell us about the adoption of, of digital healthcare systems? What is it that determines whether somebody is going to accept a, an app or a medical device as part of their treatment um, when, as we know, it, there's a, a reasonable high chance they won't? So I think the starting point obviously has to be awareness that this is a possibility. You know, the people have to be aware that at a basic level, things like physical exercise and diet are likely to contribute to a more healthy life life and a longer life. But that it, when people have clinical conditions, to be aware of how they might change their, li um, their lifestyles and the values of adhering to medications or to digital interventions. Um, 
and awareness of what's possible in terms of digital interventions, what's out there, what's available to people. Once they're aware, then they have to be um, motivated to actually try it out. Um, it, so it has to look like it's going to have some positive value in their lives and look like it's going to be usable and useful for people. Um, and then once they've started using it, they actually, you know, if, if it's the kind of technology that needs to be used long term and some aren't, some it's just kind of use it briefly and then you've changed and you don't need to continue using it. But for those where long term engagement is important, it has to really fit people's lifestyles. It has to come at a cost that is appropriate, must not be stigmatising. Um, it has to be trusted in terms of what's happening to the data, as we talked about earlier. And it has to be perceived as being safe. So it's about safety, value, usability, fit with lifestyle, fit with personal image as well. Jackie, I'd, li I'd like to talk a little bit, change the subject a little bit to the, the sort of the, the, a change in the healthcare industry. So Benevolent is a, a tech company, Benevolent AI, that's AI right in the title. Your background is in uh, more traditional drug companies. Um, so I'm interested in both firstly, why you thought, if indeed you thought, why in order to realise the potential of uh, artificial intelligence in drug development, it required a separate, more tech company-like vehicle in order to achieve that. And what is the difference that you've experienced so far? I'm really glad you asked me that because one of the reasons I left the pharmaceutical industry to go to Benevolent um, was that how drug discovery has been done and how drugs have been developed hasn't changed really for decades. It's pretty much, it was pretty much the same as it was done in the 1960s and 70s. Obviously, there was the impact of molecular biology, but, but essentially the process was the same. And it used to frustrate me because there was so much information, so much evidence out there, but because of the bandwidth I as an individual scientist or even a team of scientists had, we just couldn't synthesise all that information to come up with better targets to work on, a better disease understanding. And the only way we can do that is to actually use artificial intelligence, machine learning approaches to be able to analyse the data and pull it all together. So you may say, well, why couldn't you do that in a normal company? Well, first of all, what you've got to, to recognise is that large organisations like pharmaceutical companies and indeed some of the large tech organisations are organised in a particular way at a particular time. And in order to be disruptive, in some ways you've really got to start with a blank sheet of paper. It's why digital health technologies have taken off in countries in Africa where there was no healthcare infrastructure more rapidly in some ways than they have in more developed countries. So we started with a blank sheet of paper, brought data scientists in, biologists and chemists. But I think I underestimated how long it would take to get those two different approaches to work together very closely. So you had the domain experts and you had the tech experts. And they spoke the same language, but meant something completely different. And it probably took about two years of bringing the scientists, first, first because the technologists didn't iterate enough with the scientists and they would think they understood the problem and then go away and work on it for six weeks, come back and it wouldn't be the right solution. But also the scientists were so distrustful of the technology initially that they didn't actually ask for what they really wanted because they really didn't think the technology would be able to deliver it. Over the course of time, we've built a culture where 
the data scientists and the domain experts work very closely together in a way that I think would be very hard to kind of kickstart in a large company. Now, we have collaborations with uh, pharmaceutical companies, and I think one of the things that we can bring to those collaborations is different ways of working and really breaking down some of the more traditional silos that exist in these, these companies. And I don't think until by using this approach and showing that we can demonstrate a fundamental shift in either the cost or the time or the success of drug discovery and development, once we do that, then of course there'll be the incentive for larger companies to really look at the investment that's required to do this properly. And do you have a different relationship with regulators? Obviously drug development is keenly watched. Um, What is the relationship that you have? Well, so we, and again, I think this is interesting, because we are developing medicines, they have to be approved from a regulatory point of view. And so the relationship is actually very similar because we're not actually using wearable devices for regulatory purposes. We are doing some exploratory uh, work with with wearables. Uh, So the process itself is still a regulated process. But again, one of the things I think that was interesting, having a company that combines clinical development as well as early stage discovery is that very early on we made sure that we had in place all the standard operating procedures, the version controls and things that really made it very easy downstream to be able to document how we've got to a particular decision. So I thought it it brought a rigour that was very important, I thought. When we talk about digital healthcare, often we envisage whether it's uh, apps or uh, maybe new drug development systems, kind of purely digital systems, but there is also an emerging class of uh, treatments or devices that kind of integrate the digital and the biological. And we're talking about things that you actually put inside your body. Obviously, that's not necessarily anything new. Pacemakers have been around for a long time. But obviously, these devices are increasingly digitized. Elizabeth, what are some of the challenges that that these devices uh, present? And uh, what do we need to do about those challenges? Yeah, this is a really good question. Um, And, you know, we have had medical devices for a very long time. Um, They're inserted into our bodies, and a lot of them will have these embedded computer systems. And so there are two major issues. This is cybersecurity and um, electromagnetic interference. So... um, so as we know of medical devices now with the move in digital health, they're increasingly becoming more interconnected of hospital systems, um, hospital networks, the internet and smartphones. And so, you know, this cybersecurity risk is a real one. Um, and if these devices are really poorly designed, you know, unauthorized users can get in and make changes. Um, so if we look at cardiac devices, um, as an example, um, hackers, if they, could, if they did get in, they could cause the, the battery to deplete or they could, in theory, give a patient an inappropriate shock which, you know, could cause harm. And we've had a number of big names recently, you know, um, like Medtronic, Abbott, have been called over, you know, some of the risks around their products. And even only March this year, a U.S. cybersecurity agency assigned a vulnerability score of 9.3 to a particular cardiac implant um, near the top of its 10-point scale. And the other area is around um, electronic magnet- electromagnetic interference or disturbance from radio frequency transmitters like RFID. And 
And so this is a new area. And so clinicians are going to have to be more aware of this. And so when a patient comes to them and says things aren't quite working out well, they need to kind of be a detective and work out well, where were you, you know, what environment were you in and try and work out was a device affected by that. So these are kind of really important questions. So healthcare providers themselves might need to a bit of more understanding of telecommunications uh, science and research as well as just medical research? Well, um, possibly, yes. I mean, depending on how popular you know, how these devices are going forward. Great. Uh, you mentioned interoperability there, um, and that is, that is a topic that we, whenever any, we talk about any industry um, and with respect to digitization, interoperability sort of rears its head. Uh, Jackie, what do we need to do? What data infrastructure needs to be built so that um, these individual devices and individual technologies we're talking about do pull together to form a cohesive digitized healthcare system? One of the most important things is standards and having the um, standardization across different types of devices to allow that interoperability. If we think about imaging, uh, a lot of imaging is digital, whether it's pathology or radiology. And there are now being developed standards which allow uh, images from different types of machine to, to be shared. So I think this is where I think policy and governments do have a role to play in driving that standardisation. I think it's, it's also Im important that uh, whether we're talking about digital pathology or electronic health records, that there are certain standards in terms of what is expected of the data systems used. So in the UK, we've had GP records uh, digitised uh, for many years, but hospital records have been much, much slower to get digitised. In fact, I saw a statistic that only 10% of hospital records are digitised, somebody said, from, uh, I saw in 2019. Um, a number of different systems have been used to implement this and I think it's important that NHS procurement agree on what even if there are different systems that are being used that there is a certain set of standards and interoperability that those systems have to adhere to. And do you see those standards being regional so for example you talked about the NHS there do you th see there being UK standards or are we trying to achieve global standards? I mean, ideally, you would like to have global standards. And the reason I would say, I say that is, I mean, I've worked with several uh, small companies who have been trying to get their devices uh, or methodologies uh, adopted by the different health services um, or regional trusts. Now, those trusts have different uh, patient consent. They have different uh, cloud-based uh, storage requirements. And in order for our local developers of devices and equipment to be a digital equipment to be able to export globally, we should be adhering to standards uh, that are used in other countries, especially large markets like the the US and uh, emerging markets like China. So, I would say that at a minimum, we should strive for UK standardisation or interoperability, um, but ideally one would want to look at some form of, of, of global standard that allows companies here in the UK to be able to effectively market across the globe. Great. So to finish, I'd like to ask all of you where you think this is taking us. So uh, if everything goes to plan and the potential is realised, where in 10 or 20 years 
how would you characterize the healthcare system that we have as a right result of digitization? I'll start with you, please, Anne. Okay, so I, first I want to say that I don't think we can expect quick fixes. I think it's probably going to take 10 or 20 years to actually achieve the kinds of things that we've been talking about, like interoperability and balancing off the needs for safety and privacy with usability, etc. Um, but if we do get it right, then I think digital technology should be enabling people people, by which I mean citizens, um, to interact with the care system much more smoothly than is currently possible across primary and secondary care, whether you're on holiday in another part of the country or whether you're at home with your um, local clinical teams. Clinicians should be able to focus on care, not on worrying about the technology or whether or not they trust the AI algorithms or whatever. And they should be able to build those trusting relations with patients that, that are mediated by the technology. There'll be more variation in the kinds of interactions that we have with the care system um, and more variation across citizens because there is such variability across the um, population. And ideally, more timely warnings of acute events such as myocardial infarction, i.e. heart attacks, um, to improve prevention rather than just reaction to things that happen in the future. So the government's stated ambition is to ensure that people can enjoy at least five extra years of healthy, independent years of life by 2035. And I want to emphasise the word enjoy in that, i.e. that, you know, it's about good quality of life, not just a longer, slower decline into old age and death. Same question for you, Elizabeth. Yeah, I mean, if it works well, um, we're going to have healthier populations. We're going to have um, uh, improved outcomes and and savings for our healthcare systems. Um, there'll be shift, hopefully, to more home care, especially for long term conditions. As we know, you know, we don't want to put people in hospitals if we can manage them at home and monitor their vital signs or you know their treatment adherence, whatever. Um, so uh, you know, it, it's an exciting time, but at, you know, at the heart of it, it needs to be equitable. Um, we need to make sure no one's left behind. Um, because I think of vulnerable populations, people who are, you know, might not have access to the internet, maybe their educational attainment is not as high as others. And so, you know, we have to think of the, 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 the vulnerable populations who might not be able to access these services in the first place. How will they be damaged in the future by digital health? You know, we have to make sure we carry and hold everyone with us, you know. So that's a key consideration for me. And Jackie? Well, for me, uh, obviously, the effects on the health service of um, improved analytics in areas like diagnosis, for example, pathology, would be really, really powerful. But in my area, in drug discovery and development, I want to hope to see that there will be, actually within a 20-year time frame, many drugs that have been discovered using AI and digital technologies, and that clinical trials will move from being 50% successful to maybe 80% successful. And doing that will have a huge impact, I think, on patients' lives, and especially in chronic diseases like Alzheimer's, for which at the moment there's no real effective therapy. Jackie, Anne, Elizabeth, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the EIU Digital Economy Podcast. And thanks again to our sponsors, DXC, an independent IT services company that specialises in digital transformation. If you haven't already done so, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice. Tune in next time when we'll be discussing the global market for digital skills.